that song that Miguel just uh, and Olesa just sung for us so beautifully. It's called Knowing You, all I, subtitled All I Once Held Dear. It's by Graham Kendrick, a British composer, and he wrote this song almost 30 years ago. And uh, if you've ever watch a video or attend a Promise Keepers convention, they love singing the song. And you see grown men with their arms raised in the air, tears rolling down the cheeks, because the words really move them. And I chose this song because this, the, the song, the lyrics is actually based on Philippians 3, the passage that we're going to cover this morning, especially verse 7 to 11. So let me, uh, before I begin, uh, have a word of prayer. So pray with me. Father God, uh, thank you for this beautiful morning and wonderful uh, breeze uh, to keep us cool despite the hot sun. Uh, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will be present, that your Holy Spirit will soften every heart and mind to receive your word. And may each of us find something in the message to uh, transform our lives. So I give thanks, Lord. I give thanks for every brother and sister who is present here with us, and for all those uh, brothers and sisters watching from home with their families, and hopefully with their friends as well. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and privilege to share a message with the congregation this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me first give you, uh, Miguel, thanks Miguel for reading the passage. Let me just give you uh, an overview of what I'm going to cover this morning. The central message is knowing Christ is life transforming. And Paul, in this passage, covers three major themes. The first theme is actually a warning against false teaching. And the second theme is a warning against putting confidence in the flesh. And then the third theme is encouragement for us to place our confidence in Christ's righteousness and in his resurrection. So right through the message, I'll be reminding you of uh, these major messages. So let's jump right in. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. So how interesting that the first word in this chapter is finally. And when we see this word, you get the impression that Paul was going to end his letter to the Philippians right here, right? And, and, and then something caught his attention, and there's an abrupt change to the second sentence. We say, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So he's saying, I'm going to repeat some of the things I have said to you before. And I'm doing this because I care about you. I care about you being safe. 
and, and he was probably referring to repeating things he has taught them before as the gospel of Jesus Christ and he wanted to be sure that they understood these things properly and well. So without more ado, let's get into the first theme, which is a warning against false teachers. So let's read uh, verse 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So I, I guess when you read verse 2, you get the impression that Paul was pretty upset. He was pretty uh, angry. And, and because he used words like dogs and evildoers. Now you, you know that in Paul's time in the first century, dogs were wild animals. They were not domesticated. So to call somebody a dog is a very derogatory term. Right? Dogs were wild, they were scavengers, they were unwelcome. And then Paul refers to these same people as evil doers. And I think he did that because they were preaching a false salvation, which Paul cares very much about, that the gospel is presented correctly and so that we can be secure in it. So the mutilation of the flesh is referring to physical circumcision. So why was Paul so upset? Well, he is sitting in a Roman prison, and this is AD 61, right? And this issue, which is about circumcision, and the, the question is, do Gentiles have to be circumcised before they become Christians? Right, so it's a it's a pretty painful question, if if you hear the pun. Um, so the 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 issue was actually settled more than ten years ago, because if you remember the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas, at the end of the first missionary journey, uh, went to Jerusalem, made a special trip to Jerusalem to meet with the Jerusalem Council, which is a council of church elders and the apostles who were still alive. And they presented the question to this council, and the council deliberated and came to the conclusion that no, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised physically before they become Christians. And here, over 10 years later, Paul is still dealing with the issue because these people have come to the Philippian church as they have been going to other churches that Paul founded and teaching that Gentiles have to be circumcised before they become Christians. So you can see why Paul is very upset. And it also tells us that false teaching can be persistent and the people who are advocating them are pervasive and persistent. And we know that this uh, issue was pervasive because Paul talked about this issue in his letters to Rome, to the Corinthians, 
to the Galatians, to the Colossians, and to Titus. So, so he had to deal with this over and over and over again. So let, let us ask, what is the correct teaching about circumcision? So going over verse 3 again, he said, Sorry for the slight uh, hesitation. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28-29 said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. For a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul is saying that circumcision is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing, and it's of the heart. And we might think that this is a New Testament interpretation of circumcision, but it is not, because this view that circumcision is spiritual goes back to the Old Testament. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, it says right there, circumcision therefore, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This is God saying to the Israelites. And then a better quote, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So this passage is interesting. It says, if you read it carefully, it says, circumcision is by God, right? So if you think about it, who, no human can circumcise your heart. Only God can. And it's done through the Holy Spirit. And then, more interestingly, it says you have to have your heart circumcised so that you can obey the great commandment, which is to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Right? That is the first and greatest commandment. And then the third point in this passage is you circumcise your heart, then you will love God, and then that you may live. In other words, that you will have eternal life. So, powerful passage here. So now we know that the true circumcision is the circumcision of your heart. But the point here is Paul's warning. Be aware of false teaching. And be alert. Because false teaching leads you to a false Christ, it leads you to a false gospel, and it leads you to a false salvation. And all throughout church history, the 2,000 years of church history, I would say that false teaching is rampant, and we see it even today. And so, brothers and sisters, 
my point this morning is we have to be alert. We have to be aware. But how do you defend yourself against false teaching? How do you know when you encounter false teaching? How do you know when you meet someone who is a false teacher? How do you discern that? The simple answer is there's only one way. You have to really, really know the Bible. Not just at a cursory level, but at a deep level, right? And, and, and I'll just give another example. In Revelations 2, uh, Jesus in his letters to the churches, uh, in particular the letter to Ephesus and the letter to the church in Pergamon, he, he mentioned, he warned the, the, the people there about the Nicolaitans. That's another group of false te teachers. And this group was basically uh, interpreting that with Christ, freedom from Mosaic law allows them freedom to do all kinds of things. Unfortunately, what they were advocating leads to you committing idolatry and sexual immorality. So Jesus warned about that false teaching. So there's a lot around, and I would uh, encourage you all to explore this topic on your own, and you will be amazed by how much uh, and how pervasive false teaching is. But we defend ourselves by reading, studying the Bible, and truly getting into the Word of God in a serious way. And we should be like the Bereans. If you remember, again, from the book of Acts, Acts 17.11, it says, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, that is the gospel from Paul's teaching, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they just didn't take what Paul was teaching them about the gospel and, and run with it. They were reading scripture, checking scripture to make sure that even what Paul was saying is true. And by the way, it's interesting because when he refers to scripture here in, the, in their time, this is the Old Testament, right? So he tells us that Christ is in the Old Testament, okay? So, so nice point. Um, so at this point, I'm encouraging you to read. And, and I thought, how, how do I get the, to, the inspiration to read the Bible? Let me introduce you to a man, uh, a three-star general. From the, who used to serve the U.S. Army. His name is General William K. Harrison. This is a godly general. And when he was a cadet, a 20-year-old cadet at West Point, he made the commitment to read through the Bible every year. And General Harrison, by the time he passed on at, at the age of 91, he had read through the Bible 70 times. But actually, it's better than that. He read through the Old Testament 70 times. He read through the New Testament 280 times because each year he would read through the New Testament four times. So I, I share that with you about this godly general. He left a godly legacy, affected a lot of 
people in his life. And, and, uh, and he's one of my heroes of the faith and an inspiration to me. So I hope you remember that and uh, take his challenge, you know, try to beat his record. And those of you who are 20 or under, I think you have a good chance <laughs> to, to surpass him. So let me move on to team number two, which is Paul teaching us, warning us not to place confidence in the flesh. Now, what does the word flesh mean? I'll, I'll just say that quickly. Flesh is anything that is outside of spiritual. Right? It is anything apart from Christ, and it is human accomplishment. So when we say do things in the flesh, we mean anything that you accomplish as a human being. So let me read the passage, this particular passage. Uh, verse 3b to 6, Paul says, And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So I'll stop there uh, for the moment and, and we'll go on to the next slide because this is Paul setting himself as an example for us by telling us about his bio. And, and just remember that this was before he had that encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, when he uh, subsequent to that became a Christian, a, a follower, believer of Jesus Christ. Okay? So Paul is telling us that before he became a Christian, he had significant uh, pedigree, impeccable pedigree as a Jew. He had significant accomplishments and advantages as a Jew. So let, let's just quickly go down his, his uh, bio. So he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. That tells us that he came from a devout Jewish family and they adhered to Jewish law and, and circumcise their children on the eighth day. And then he says, I belong to the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin, as you know, is one of the 12 tribes. And, and why, why, would, why would that be a distinction? Well, after the reign of King Solomon, uh, the, the Israelite kingdom was split into two, right? There was a northern kingdom of Israel, which was comprised of 10 tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the tribe of Judah, uh, together with Benjamin. Benjamin was the only one of the 12 tribes that remained loyal to Judah. And as you know, Judah carries the Davidic, Davidic line, right? And, and eventually the genealogy shows that Jesus came from David's line. So Benjamin, uh, uh, Jewish people would take pride that they belong to the tribe of Benjamin. And then Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's saying is that his lineage is pure. His bloodline has not been contaminated, as happened in other uh, Jewish families, perhaps. And the Old Testament, if you check the Old Testament, you see why that is so significant. 
And then more than that, he was a Roman citizen. He was born in a Roman uh, province. And, and that was something to take some pride in in the first century. And then his family sent him as a, as a young, ma young man to Jerusalem for his education. And that again showed their seriousness about the Jewish religion. And Paul is a talented fellow because he ended up uh, being educated by this famous man called Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a great scholar in the first century and he was particularly known to be an expert in Jewish law, particularly Jewish oral law. So Paul received a tremendously good education in Judaism. And then as he became an adult, he joined the elite religious group called the Pharisees. And we know a lot about the Pharisees uh, when, when we read the, the four gospels. Yeah. So he, he, he was uh, serious about Judaism. And he was so serious that he became a zealous persecutor of Christians before his encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. So by Paul's example, he's saying, you know, I have so, ma so much to be proud about. So what does he say? now that he knows Christ. Go to verse 7 and 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now the word rubbish is interesting that Paul used, that to say all his prior accomplishments he considers rubbish. That means worthless. But the Greek word in the original text is skubala, and, and the ESV translates that word as rubbish, and if you read the King James Version, the translation is dung, D-U-N-G. A stronger term, right? So what Paul was saying was, all my great past accomplishments deserve to be flushed down the toilet. So I hope you get that image of, of what Paul thinks about his past accomplishments. All right. So what about us? What about us? What do we put confidence in? So this calls for a bit of reflection as I go through direct questions. Do, do, you, do we place confidence in our education, in our academic qualifications, you know, going to a top school, uh, getting a PhD, maybe going on for multiple degrees in various disciplines, or do we take place confidence in our career path, you know, ending up working for a great, rich Silicon Valley company? Or do we place our confidence in money, in our six-figure salaries, in our net worth, in our significant IRA or 401k plans? Or do we 
place confidence in our talents, the gifts and, and talents that God has given us? Do we take pride in our creativity, in our IQ, maybe in our interpersonal skills that, that get us into marketing, for example? Or, or do we simply take place confidence in our families as, as good parents and raising obedient children? So be honest with yourself. What do you take place confidence in? Now, is Paul telling us to abandon these things? By no means. He's, he wouldn't say that because in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, anyone not willing to work, let him not eat, <laughs> if you remember that. So he's not against work. He's not against uh, you getting an education. He's not against you getting a career. He is concerned that you may be so focused on the material things of life that you've lost sight of the spiritual. So that, that's what he's trying to get us to strike a balance in our lives. And now for a personal note. The answer to those questions I asked earlier for myself more than 20 years ago was yes, 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 yes. Okay, I place confidence in my great education, in my great career, in my great talents, in my great uh, family. I had great family. Praise God for that. And I could afford anything I wanted. That was me. So on the outside, I looked great. right? But on the inside, I was an absolute mess. I was unhappy, miserable. It got to the point where I didn't like the person I was. Imagine that. So that was when the Holy Spirit did his work in me and made me realize that I was spiritually bankrupt. And praise the Lord. I uh, took note. I heard the Spirit's prompting. And I became a born-again Christian 20 years ago to turn my life from being a busy executive in a multinational company and turn 180 degrees around and give that all up. So I praise God for that. It really cleared up the mess <laughs> for me. All right. So some of you may be asking right now, how do I strike a balance? How do I go on with all my ambitions and, and providing for my family, and yet, you know, have a relationship with Christ. So I, I made a quick list to go through with you about investing in spiritual growth. That's what we're talking about. So this list, I'm sure you're very familiar with the items on this list. The thing is to make a commitment, right? to do something about it. So the first is you really have to have a desire to know Christ, which means to form a relationship with Him, which means to love Him. And loving Christ is obeying Christ. You have to obey His teachings. 
Then the second thing is, if you love someone, you'll be wanting to spend time with him or her. In this case, you have to spend time with Christ daily, in prayer, in Bible study, as General Harrison did, and in contemplation. Our world is a very noisy place. If you want to hear the voice of God, you need to you know, be silent, so learn to spend silent time with the Lord and feel His presence, hear His voice. And then a more practical thing, which is nothing new, you see the initials on the chart there, is to practice what would Jesus do, WWJD. This is a, a very old spiritual discipline. It actually came towards the end of the 19th century started by a man called Charles Sheldon, who wrote a book, In His Steps. Subtitle is, What Would Jesus Do? And we know that in, in our lives, we will encounter adversity, we will encounter trials and tribulations. And the question is, how do you put your faith, right, to, to conquer these uh, challenges in your life? And what would Jesus do brings Jesus into the picture whenever you are facing trial and tribulation. So I would suggest practicing that. And then you cannot grow spiritually on your own. You have to have fellowship with brothers and sisters who encourage you, who hold you accountable. So for goodness sake, as Pastor Andrew have said many times before, join a home group. Right? Be part of an Emir's group and, and, and uh, join the women's group. Join, start with participating in the brunch and then, and then fellowship with, with uh, sisters. Yeah? So highly encourage you to do that. And, and then I think Pastor Andrew mentioned it last week that when you become a Christian, God has gifted you with 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 talent, some talent that can br you can bring to the body of Christ to serve God in that way. So serve, find opportunities to serve God in church ministries. And if you're a new Christian, a new, a baby Christian, or someone who is considering building a relationship with the Lord, you're a seeker, uh, Try to find a spiritual mentor or find someone who can disciple you. So these are things that I think are very familiar to everyone. The thing you have to ask yourself is, how can I invest time growing spiritually? Because unless you do, you'll be placing confidence in the flesh. And that will get in the way of having a relationship with Christ and being in Christ. So let me transit to theme number three, which is Paul's strong advice to us to place confidence in Christ's righteousness and his resurrection. So let, let's explore a little bit why he would want to do that. 
So first, let us talk about righteousness. And in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is by works, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, three points. Righteousness cannot come from human accomplishments. That was why Christ had to die on the cross. You know, it was costly to God to, to see that happen because there was no other way for us human beings to become reconciled with our God. So Christ had to die on the cross to bring us forgiveness of our sins. And we stand justified before God because when we have faith in Christ, we are cloaked in His righteousness. God sees Christ's righteousness on us and not our sins. So it's very powerful. And I know those of us who are long-time long Christians, you know, we hear the gospel year in and year out. It may become a re, something like a rerun of an old movie. Okay, all right. And I remind you, be like the Bereans who study the scriptures daily, right, with enthusiasm and purpose. Or like General Harrison, in wartime or in peacetime or in retirement, he faithfully read God's word. So let, let's, you know, have that attitude. And now for the resurrection, the all-important question of the resurrection. Why was Paul so emphatic about the resurrection? Let's read verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, here Paul is saying, by any means possible. He is totally focused on ensuring that he will have eternal life. You know, how many of us do that? Here is Paul saying, the resurrection is so important to me. Let me share about a survey that was done in the United Kingdom in 2017, so fairly recent, sponsored by the BBC. They surveyed uh, over 2,000 British people and uh, a well-done well mathematical survey. And the question they asked is, do you believe in the resurrection that is described in the Christian Bible? And believe it or not, it was half and half. 50% of the people said they believe, and the other half said they do not believe. Isn't that interesting? And, and, and then the, of, of, these, of the sample, uh, th there was a sub subset uh, of people who professed that they are Christians. And in this subset of Christians, 25% of them said they did not believe the resurrection. That's amazing. One in four of these Christians say they do not believe in the resurrection. 
Okay. Why is that important? Because the resurrection is foundational to Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. And that was what Paul was trying to get across. And, and as we approach Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let's all be sure that in our hearts, we do not, you know, just take it for granted. Let's make some effort to truly understand, at least for this Easter, why the resurrection is so important. So I suggest, and again, thanks to Paul, he wrote comprehensively about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I recommend that every one of us should devote time to read that before Easter Sunday. I would just, uh, I won't have time to read the whole of chapter 15. Um, I, I, I just want to read to you verse 3 to 8. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some may have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul himself. Now, 1 Corinthians was written 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And, and so you see that eyewitnesses were still alive when Paul wrote this. Right? That's why he said, he talked about the 500 brothers who met Christ, met the resurrected Christ at the same time. It, was, it wasn't just, you know, 500 people raising their hands saying, yeah, I, I, I saw Christ. No, they were together. And so they could say, I was there. It never happened, right? So, so this to me is tremendous evidence of the truth. Now, Jesus, of course, knew of his resurrection beforehand. If we look at John Chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the resurrection is strongly tied to the hope of eternal life for every one of us. No resurrection, no eternal life. So these eyewitnesses, the disciples, the apostles of the early church, they spread the gospel. So, for example, uh, Peter, uh, after he received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he boldly spoke about the gospel. So he shared with a crowd Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 
And Acts tells us that on that day, 3,000 people came to Christ. So you can see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just talking about his death, his life, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now understand that today we do that without any threat or you know, mostly without any threat in, in, in America. Right? We can go out as ambassadors of Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will boldly testify about Christ. But in those days, in the first century, the early disciples and apostles and, and believers had to share Christ or share about Christ under severe persecution under the threat of painful death. If you read Fox's Book of the Martyrs, you'll find out the horrible ways they, they had to lose their lives for Christ. So the question, if you still have doubts about the resurrection, the question we ask ourselves is, why would these people do that if it was all a lie? Okay. So I leave you with that thought. So I've come to the end of theme number three, and I'll just summarize it as follows. We are covered by Christ's righteousness through faith in him. And our hope of eternal life is secure because of his resurrection. So I've come to the end of the message, and I will just summarize it for you. Today was... Knowing Christ is life-transforming. I hope I've convinced you a little bit about that. So I hope that you will make changes. And the first thing is to really know the real Christ. And you do that by studying God's Word. And then the second is, how do we shift from the material to the spiritual? How do we get away from being totally consumed in human accomplishment and not focus on Christ's accomplishments? And then lastly, but not least, Christ's righteousness and resurrection, when we fully understand that, it will change our focus from the temporal to the eternal. So I hope this passage will encourage you to make those shifts in, in your life. So pray with me. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do his mighty work in every brother and sister here or at home listening. I pray that everyone will be convicted to grow spiritually and I pray that in fellowship with other brothers and sisters, they will experience Proverbs 27, 17, that iron sharpens iron, so everyone sharpens another. So I give thanks, Lord, for this opportunity and privilege to share the message this morning. My heart is full of gratitude. And... I pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.